check us out on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash blackgirlnerds. On Patreon, you, the fan, support us, the content creators. Patreon allows us to do a myriad of things. First and foremost, this very podcast that you're listening to costs money. So your support helps with that. And with our website, there's hosting fees as well as site security maintenance. And then there's traveling expenses. We're traveling all over the country, doing panels and events, press coverage, meetups, and that does require your support. So go to patreon.com forward slash blackgirlnerds. And thanks to everyone who has supported us so far. You're helping this community grow. Hey, y'all. My name is Jake Choi. I'm an actor. Uh, I've been in, I guess, uh, TV dramas and comedies like Law & Order SVU, Broad City, Younger. And um, you are listening to... The one and only Black Girl Nerds Podcast. Hi, this is Liz Femi. I'm an actress co-starring on Send Me, an original web series. And you're listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. This is Shanae Gibbs. This is Chanel Gibbs, also known as the Gibbs Sisters. And we're on the Black Black Girl Girl Nerds Podcast. Um, my name is Tanahasi Coates. I write for The Atlantic and I am the writer on uh, Black Panther right now. And you are listening to the Black Girl Nerds podcast. I'm Nisha Green, co creator of Underground on WGN America, and you're listening to Black Girl Nerds podcast. Hi, this is Daryl Bell from Planet Earth. Now, actually, I'm from a different world, school days, and well, Chicago. There you go. I'm from there too. And it's a joy and a pleasure to be here on the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. Five, six, seven, eight. Holla, boys and girls, it's the BGN. Coming from the Marvel world to the DC friends. All the way from Hollywood to the PCN. She defends. Thank you for tuning in to episode 74 of the Black Girl Nerds podcast. My name is Jamie and I am your host. This episode is titled Misty Night, Storm, Black Google, and Mentorship. Four segments. In our first segment, we invite Simone Missick. Simone is playing Misty Knight in the new Luke Cage Marvel series, scheduled to debut on Netflix on September 30th. And we were so excited to have her on. And she does share with us some very interesting insight about the show and what you can expect when it premieres in September. And that segment is co-hosted by Karan and Latanya. In our second segment, we invite Alexandra Shipp, yet another great black superheroine. 
Alexandra plays the role of Storm, who is slated to appear in the X-Men Apocalypse film, which will debut on May 27th. So not only does she talk about Aurora Monroe, but she comes out as a self-declared black girl nerd. So she really is more of a geek than you think. And we had a really great time chatting it up in that interview. And that's a one-on-one interview that I did with her. In our third segment, we invite Valicia Butterfield-Jones. Valicia is the head of Black Community Engagement for Google, and she talks about diversity and how the tech space in Google is very important for so many people of color. And that is a one-on-one interview by KB. In our fourth segment, we invite Sean Blanchard. Sean Blanchard is a mentorship specialist, and he discusses community leadership and entrepreneurship. And he also shares with us a very gut-wrenching story about his background and how he became the person that he is working in community activism. And in that segment, it is co-hosted by Karan. So as you can tell, we have got a fully loaded, fully loaded episode featuring celebrities, activists, and executives. And please, please, please share this episode. If there are people out there that have not heard of the Black Girl Nerds podcast, let them know about us, spread the word. And if you subscribe to us on any of our streams, whether it be iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher Radio, be sure to give us hearts on SoundCloud, give us a rating on iTunes, leave us comments, let us know how we're doing. If there are things that we need to improve and you want to give us criticism, we're more than happy to take that. But let us know so that way we can improve our podcast and let it grow and develop. So thanks again for tuning in. And I can guarantee you this is going to be one of the best episodes that we've done so far. I am claiming it. It's going to be the best episode that we've done. So sit back, relax and enjoy the show. Actress Simone Missick is playing Misty Knight in the Marvel Netflix series Luke Cage. She has also appeared on such shows as Ray Donovan and in the television film A Taste of Romance. In the Netflix series, she plays the role of Misty Knight, a former NYPD officer with a bionic arm. Misty Knight is also expected to appear in the Defender series. Welcome to this segment of the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. My name is Jamie. I am your host. I am so excited, guys. We have Simone Missick here. Simone is playing Misty Knight in Marvel's Luke Cage series that you can find on Netflix. It will debut on September 30th. All of us are going to be all over that on Twitter. And I am so excited to have her here to talk to us about it. Thank you, Simone, for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Whoop, whoop. Whoop, whoop. Yeah. <laughs> and we have our lovely co-hosts, Karan and Latanya on. Thank you, ladies, for coming on. Thank you, darling. Thank you. So I, I want to start. Um, I want to call you Misty. I don't know why. 
<laughs> really about to call you Misty. Um, so, Simone, can you tell us a little bit about how you landed the role of Misty Knight? And did you read any of the comics? Uh, so, for the first part, I just auditioned. You know, it was a very um, simple process. It was probably the easiest audition I've ever had in my entire career. Um, and... Yeah, I did. I put myself on tape in my living room with my husband reading the lines and then went in and had an audition and booked the job. Found out like maybe a couple days later. It was an unnaturally easy process, which is how you kind of know when spirit just lines up and God just puts you where you need to be. And it what is meant for you is meant for you. Um so, yeah, that was how the audition process and, and the job landing happened. And then I had no familiarity with Misty as a character. I hadn't read the comic books um, growing up or even prior to booking the job. And then once I did get the job, I kind of, you know, wanted to keep as much of the comics and and reading the comics as minimal as possible because I I knew that we were doing something different I didn't want to feel kind of you know locked into the idea of who Misty Knight is versus really just as an actor immersing myself in the words that you know our our writers and our creator had come up with so um I haven't read a lot of Misty Knight comics I've, I've kind of skimmed but the head of Netflix, I'm sorry, the head of Marvel, Jeff Loeb, was kind of like, you know, if you go into a comic book store and you try to buy some Misty Knight comics, people are going <laughs> to people are going to know. So he kind of terrified me from even going into a comic book store and buying some. So I haven't uh, I haven't done the the reading of the work yet. Two suggestions. Daughters of the Dragon with Colleen Wing. Mm-hmm. and Fearless Defenders. Mm, I have not heard of that one. Yes. Fearless Defenders is awesome because it's an all-women team, So, and it's women of all different nationalities. There's a Native American character, of course, Misty, and then there's also a queer woman. So it, it's a lot of intersectionality and diversity, and it's it's a really great comic. So those wow. are my suggestions. Yeah. Thank you for that. <laughs> I so, appreciate it. Yes. So it seems lately superheroines and villains are finally getting solo films. Captain Marvel and also Black Widow and Harley Quinn was recently announced. However, all of these women are white and we need a black superheroine and Missy Knight. (laughs) I think Missy Knight is definitely closer than any other woman of color heroine right now. So why do you think it's taking so long? And are you prepared to say yes if you're offered a solo film? Uh, hell yes. I am prepared <laughs> to say yes. Doesn't Oprah say say yes to everything? I mean, yes. I, I would absolutely uh, be honored and, and be prepared and be excited about the prospect of what that is. And um, in terms of why it's taking so long, you know, I think that one of the things that being a part of this show and being a part of the Marvel family has really opened up to my understanding is how many people of color, not just black, but people of color read comics, read comic books, go and support, you know, films that are based off of that. And I think that it's 
the lie that's that's been told in Hollywood about so many films starring people of color. Oh, it won't sell overseas or, oh, there's the interest for it or, oh, it, it won't do well financially. And it's a lie, um, but it is a, a lie that's kind of been around since the creation of film, you know. Um, so I think that the testing of the waters comes from having non-women of color star in their own films and then slowly very slowly uh the this has been the history they will then say okay well let's try you know this person let's see how that does you know we have chad bozeman getting ready to do black panther Mm -hmm. and and the excitement surrounded surrounding that all the excitement surrounding that is i think the opportunity for the people who make the decisions to go okay well maybe we looked at this the wrong way maybe there is a market for that i just heard a figure that i think if um it within the latino community i think they represent i want to say 34 or 36 percent of opening box office sales and if you don't get the latino community out to support your film it will fail Mm. And you don't see films with brown people as the lead of these box office films. So to ignore that segment and not think that they are just as hungry to see people of color on the screen, I think is is a fallacy. So, you know, a, a lot of change in Hollywood is slow, is slow growing. But in the past year with the conversations about Oscar so white and the conversations about diversity. I think that, you know, I hope that we can see some faster change and I would absolutely love to be a part of that. Hey, Simone, it's Karan. Hey, Karan. Hey girl. Misty Knight on screen actually represents a lot of firsts in inside and outside of the Marvel universe and in television including being the first definitively black woman and not one that's racially ambiguous. Mm -hmm. What was your first thought when you learned you had the role? I was over um, the top excited for the opportunity to portray such a strong, definitively black female character who isn't... um, on the on the shoulder of a man mm-hmm. you know i had someone asked me they were like oh you're on luke cage are you his girlfriend no they said are you his love interest and i took so much pride in saying no you know that is not the who misty knight is as a character yes we know that she has a, a man within the marvel universe that she is tied to mm-hmm. but that is not who she is she is a badass superhero of her own. And it is a first and it is exciting. And, and it's uh, hard as a human being, you want to just like run up and down 10 flights of stairs and like, I'm a black superhero on on the other side of it. It's like, okay, but calm down. You still have to go to work tomorrow and read the lines and do the job. And, and so there was a little bit of, um, pressure you know to do justice to this iconic character that so many people love and so many women look up to um that that was the way that I approached it not so much looking at it from the ego standpoint of this is me you know doing this great thing it's more of I have a responsibility 
to all of the people who have loved this character for as long as they have to do her justice. So it was there was the excitement and then there was the, okay, now put your head down and do what you got to do. What did you learn about Misty while you were portraying her? And do you like her? And would you two be friends? Ooh, that's a good one. Oh, that's a really good one. Will we be friends? Yes. Now, Simone is a really, uh, <laughs> what's the word? Uh, a, an understanding and loving kind of a friend. Mm-hmm. You know, I think my friends tell me I'm the one that they go to for advice and to kind of uh, talk them off the ledge. And I think Misty would be my friend that I would constantly be trying to talk off the ledge. Like, okay, don't, don't, Misty, don't <laughs> go. You ain't got to whoop everybody's ass. You know? <laughs> Maybe you should talk first. Um, and so I would, I would love to be friends with her. I have a lot of amazing female friends who are all strong-willed women and they don't take anything from anybody, uh, good or bad, you know, and, and that's exactly who Misty is. Um, some of the other, you know, I kind of don't want to share too many of the, of the details of how they have crafted Misty, but it was very, to me, serendipitous that there are a lot of shades of her that are in me. Um, when it comes to her background and just little details that that you all will get to see and the fans will get to see on September 30th that I don't want to spoil for the show. Um, But I think we would absolutely be friends. And and I learned just what what it means to be singularly focused on justice. You know, I think Mm -hmm. as an African-American woman, I grew up in Detroit. I went to school in D.C. These are predominantly black communities, cities with, you know, a strong black constituency. So I'm very aware of our relationship to the police, our relationship to the government and to politics and to the prison system. And and so to be a woman who works within that system, trying to change it, you learn as as a person, as Simone, I learned just this this idea of what justice is from someone who looks at it in a very altruistic way, you know, a very uh, hopeful ideal of what is possible for justice versus, you know, Simone who looks at uh, Ferguson and who looks at the injustice that's going on in Chicago every day and isn't as hopeful. So I, I think Misty gave me the idea of either shit or get off the pot, either do something about it or you know, stop complaining from your backyard. That's beautiful. I'm going to switch up Kayla's question and ask something else here. Um, So here on Black Girl Nerds, we do a lot of live tweeting. Uh, It's a big part of our community. And I wanted to know, first of all, are you a live tweeter? And do you plan to participate with any of the fans on social media once this show debuts on Netflix? Because what we plan to do is we we have to synchronize it since this isn't a live show. Uh, we're we're going to synchronize watching the show using the hashtag Sweet Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> so we would love you to participate or do you engage at all with, with fans on Twitter? I... You know, to be honest, and and I'm sure if you've um, kind of done any cursory uh, research, 
this is my first big major role. You know, my extent of live tweeting was watching the Wiz live and and being like, "Ooh, what's this going to be like?" Let me see how many, you know what I mean? Let me see what people are saying on Black Twitter. But there is no, you know, this is this is the first. This is a first for me. And so I would absolutely love to um live tweet with with you guys and and with all of the fans do i know if i am that adept at it i don't know but i'm gonna try yeah i am absolutely (laughs) gonna try because i mean that's kind of what makes it fun now if y'all gotta take bathroom breaks and and i fall asleep at some point I won't hold it again. That's okay. You know, I, I might drop out for a second. It might get too real because you know people are people are honest on Twitter. People are are very uh, you know brutal, and and I'm not sure if my ego can take it, but I, I sure will try. Misty so lit. Um, Misty so lit. <laughs> um, another question that Kayla had, you actually already graciously answered. Uh, about your your history researching the role and, and with comics. So my question to you is, what was your training like, and what kind of representation did you see f- for women in the stunts for for the stunt industry? Oh, okay. So um, training wise, you know, I I've always been an athlete. I've always kind of worked out, um, just pushing my myself physically and in, in the different things that I do and. Um, I had the blessing of having an amazing stunt double, a woman named Janelle Stevens, um, who has a company called Prowess PT Fitness. And one day on set, we were just talking and, um, she was like, oh yeah, I'm a personal trainer. And from that moment, she and I started working together. So I had the opportunity to not only work with my stunt double, but train with her and she's a friend of mine now. I can call her that. But she helped me with, you know, not only just getting physically fit, but, you know, some fight training, um, some fight coordinating. And there is uh, there is a, a, a enough ass kicking on screen that is mainly that is mainly just me. It's yes. Just me. <laughs> Now, when they come to, you know, flying through stuff and falling off of stuff and jumping through things, that's not me. That is not <laughs> me. But if there is a punch that's thrown, it's me. So, um, you know, that that was kind of the training going going into it. And, of course, we get to do gun training and play around with weapons and, and shoot guns, which was surprisingly exciting for me. Uh, I didn't realize I would have such such a a like take such a liking to it but um yeah that was kind of the preparation you know you just want to be physically fit and able to do whatever it is that they ask you to do and they asked me to do some fun stuff um so with that and with Janelle it was kind of you know a one-two punch Hey, Simone. It's Latanya. How are you? Hey, good. How are you? I'm fantastic. Um, Outside of what we already know about Luke Cage, how will this show be different from other Marvel shows? Um, You know, we've we've seen Daredevil. We've seen Jessica Jones. I'm a visual person, you know, and if you look at those 
shows and you think about it, just like the colors that mm-hmm. they associate with it. Like, you know, Daredevil is obviously red and Jessica Jones has the purple. And so everything about those shows have those kind of cool or dark feels to them. You know, now when it comes to Luke Cage, it's a lot of black people on screen. We look good in color. We look good in warm lighting. Okay. So, yes. <laughs> Can I get a three gets the back light? So, <laughs> even just that, like just visually, they have hired some of the most talented and attractive people of color to be on this show. Um, I mean, there was one day when we were on set and I I'm, I can't say who who the other women were, but um, Alfre Woodard, who you know is is a part of the show, yep. was was in the same room with myself and two other actresses who haven't been announced yet, so I can't say anything about it. But then there was also another actress who was there, uh, and then all of our stand-ins, and we took a picture because it looked like a dark and lovely commercial. Like oh it was goodness. just, yes, it was oh every shade. It was tall. It was short. It was thick. It was thin. It was light. It was brown. It was it oh, was heaven. It was heaven. <laughs> I'm fanning myself right now. This is amazing. I mean, and there were so many days where, you know, you get, I I will say this, you get accustomed to reading a script as an actor, unfortunately, and it'll say, Amy, 27, Bill, 35, Lisa, Black, 29. And so you go, oh, so all those people that I just read couldn't be Black? because only Lisa's going to be, you know what I mean? So when you read the scripts, you, you go, okay, well, we know that all these other people in this scene are, are black or are people of color. This is going to be when they bring in the white person. And then you go to the table read and you're like, you black too? (laughs) (laughs) So ain't no white people up in this piece? Oh, okay. And, you know, it was it was different. It was absolutely uh, a definitive statement of this is the way that we want to show our representation of Harlem and our representation of Luke Cage. And it's not to say that there is not diversity in the show. There is. Um, But there is a lot of black and brown and, and, and just people of color, period, on the screen. So that alone is different. And then the things that we as Black people bring when it comes to cultural influences, you know, the way that we talk, our music, the way that we dress. So the look and the feel of Luke Cage is going to be different from Daredevil. It's going to be different from Jessica Jones. It is just all of those things that you love about Black culture, the reason, the reason why we, you know, we scream when Beyonce drops lemonade. Just on on a day, you know, (laughs) all of those things that people celebrate about black culture are celebrated in this show. And it's not just, you know, all of the great things. It is the the things that need to be discussed within our community as well. And the things that need to be discussed within America in terms of how we treat the black community and people of color in this country um, is also handled on the show in a way that we don't necessarily see that in any of the other Marvel series. So, 
you will see discussions about Black Lives Matter. You will see discussions about gentrification. Wow. You will see dis- yes. discussions about what's going on in Harlem in terms of maintaining the people, the working class people and the neighborhoods that created what we know and love about Harlem. So it's a lot. You know, the show deals with a lot, but in a very real way that isn't contrived. You know, it's very current. It's what we are seeing in America right now. So that's, you know, kind of our little niche, our our differences. This is the blackest year ever. I'm telling you. I mean, I was for Luke Cage, but now, girl, you have got me like going crazy over here. (laughs) Oh, my God. Um, I mean, the cast alone, we've got Mahershala Ali, who a lot of people know from yes, House of Cards. Yes, we've I got Alfre Woodard. We've got Rosario Dawson. We've got just Theo Rossi. We, we just got an, a great cast, mm-hmm. the cast. And then to have, you know, the music that we're going to have. I mean, people are just going to be surprised. They're going to be blown away. Mm-hmm. I know I was every time I read this. I was like, who y'all Okay. <laughs> so Chio Hadari Coker, um, he had recently made a statement uh, comparing this show to The Wire. Would you say that that's accurate? Oh, um, I got to be honest here, guys. I haven't seen the entire season of The Wire, so that is okay. I just started on The Wire this year. <laughs> Don't feel I'm bad. I'm also late. <laughs> I'm, it, it I'm from husband. Baltimore and I've never seen The Wire. So really, it's, oh yeah, it's like looking okay. out the window. I'm good. Right, <laughs> just looking out of the window. <laughs> well, all the things that you described about the gentrification and Black mm-hmm. Lives Matter and on all of those social issues, um, some of those kinds of issues were addressed on The Wire. I mean, back in the day when it was actually aired, not right. uh, current issues that you're speaking of, but it it was speaking to. Um, issues of how the community of Baltimore had been plagued by the drug trade and also the politics involved. I, I was curious to know if it those parallels matched. But if you haven't seen it, then check out The Wire. <laughs> you know what's funny? Yes. It is my husband's. <laughs> it is his favorite show. I have bought him the box sets. Like, I, it's in our home. and And he sat me down and we've watched several episodes but to to really you know be an expert and draw those parallels i mean i i am technically the idris of the show right age uh yes. parallel in that way no that's not it at all <laughs> not at all um but no it definitely does deal with uh deal with like you said the drug trade that goes on within the community, um, gentrification that's going on, politics and the corruption that exists within the people who are actually there to serve the community and and them taking advantage of it in that way. So those parallels are there, um, but it at the same time is a superhero show and we don't have Marlo, Marlon, Mar, Mar, we don't we don't have Jamie Hector, <laughs> who, <laughs> whose character name I can't remember. We don't have Michael K. Williams. You know, we've got Luke Cage. We've got Michael Coulter with superhero strength and bulletproof skin mm-hmm. going in and handling, you know, business. So 
I think it's it's a different thing, you know. I can see where the similarities can be drawn, but I think it's it's something that we've never seen before. We just have never seen a black man on TV as a superhero. We just haven't seen it. Um, so excited. So this is, I think, you know, we can we can say, oh, it's got a little bit of this and a little bit of that, but it's its own gumbo, you know, it's its own pot. Um, you mentioned early on um, that the auditioning process was very easy. Can you tell us more about how it went down and why it was so easy? Um, the Lord. <laughs> <laughs> I know that's and right. Gonna, and I'm going to be 100, 100, 100. Like, 100. seriously. <laughs> I uh, had gotten the the audition and got an email to me and had a little bit of had heard about the show and and at the time they were calling the character Missy uh so I had no reference point for what that was I you know and they had not said that this is a Luke Cage Marvel superhero show it was just like this is an audition for a woman um and so I put myself on tape like I said in my living room very uh that's very normal for actors nowadays. A lot of things are cast. Uh, they call it eco-casting. You know, you put yourself on tape and if they like it, you book it or they'll call you in rather than wasting your time and theirs. So I put myself on on tape and uh, my manager, Stephanie Moy, who I love, I've been with her for a, a couple years. Um, she calls me up and she's like, that was great. And you look great. And I was like, okay, girl, <laughs> calm down. <laughs> like, she was really excited. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, and and so she calls me a couple days later and she's like, yeah, so they want you to come in. And I had an idea. I had heard, you know, through through the, the Negro nets of the, com- the community <laughs> Negro nets. Of, of black folk in Hollywood. You know, I had heard that, that they had another um, actor in mind for this role. That was their dream, you know, who they wanted. Mm. So I was like, I don't know why y'all getting excited over here because I already know who they want. It's like when uh, the role of Cookie Lion might have come around and people were like, I got an audition. And the other people were like, they want Taraji. They gonna get Taraji. You know what I mean? It was kind of that situation where I already knew who they wanted for the role. So leading up to it, I was doing a play. Um, I was in rehearsal and we had opening weekend the the Friday before the audition and the audition was on uh, Tuesday. So come opening night, I got the worst cold ever and was dog sick all weekend, lost my voice on Sunday. And I was like, I just don't even know if I'm going to be able to make it into this audition, let alone do a good job. So I went into the room so high on Dayquil and Echinacea and <laughs> every quill I could find that I was so cool. Like I was probably unnaturally cool. <laughs> they were like, hey. And I was like, hey. Because I had gone into the bathroom before and just prayed to God, like, just give me 10 minutes 
of not letting my nose run down my face. Just let me go in there with 10 minutes. That's all I need. And so when I came out of the audition, my husband was like, so how did it go? And I was like, I didn't die. And he was like, what? <laughs> like he's <laughs> expecting for me to be like, it was amazing. And I did a great job. I was like, well, I, I didn't pass out. So I think, you know, that was a good thing. <laughs> he was completely, you know, just over me at that point. But then they called and they were like, yeah, you got the job. So like I said, it was, it was prayer and, and God and Dayquil that got me. Prayer, <laughs> <laughs> God, and Dayquil. Good to know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the, that, is, that is the trinity of that audition's, uh, that audition's success. Those were the three things I needed. Wow. Are you ready to be a superstar? Because you know that's going to happen next once this drops. You know what's so funny? I am not. <laughs> I am not. I am not. And I, you know, I, I think that um, I, I just got to got the, the chance to go see Beyonce and she was at the Rose Bowl. And, you know, to be a performer, to have to sell out an arena, you know, not to sell out a stadium, not to sell out a club, but to sell out an arena like that's a, a level of success that you can you can see tangibly and as we are going to the concert there are all these people in the streets of Pasadena who you know are going to see Beyonce and and you can see it and my my uh, husband is like are you ready like do you want that kind of success or are you ready for for what that is and you know people talk to you about Comic-Con and how crazy it's going to be and how excited people are going to be and you know there are some actors who don't like comic-con they're like oh it's a hassle people are just insane and then there are people like me who are like hell yeah i'm ready for comic-con this is what (laughs) it's all about this is this is the opportunity to meet the people who make that stuff like this possible but i don't think i embrace the idea of not being able to walk to my grocery store or not being able to you know take my niece to the park or not being able to go to you know the movies with my mother like i don't accept that. And there are a lot of people who are extremely famous, who people love, who lead normal lives. So in terms of like being a superstar, sure. As long as that means that I can still lead a normal life because I don't ever want to be able to not get on a podcast with you guys or not, you know, be able to, to just talk to people on an individual level person to person, you know? And I think that when we think about superstar, we think people who are just untouchable and out of our reach. And Mm -hmm. that's not, that's not how I got here. Those are not the actors that I admire. You know, that is not the way that I envision my career. So I am ready for all of the success that this project and this character brings, but I refuse and uh, deny the concept that I won't ever still just get to be Simone from Detroit who went to Renaissance High School and Howard University. And, you know, my mom still tells me she don't like my hair or my outfit. <laughs> like, I'm still going to be that person. I love you, Simone. I just I want you too. to know that. <laughs> Thank you so, so much for coming on our show. Before you go, can you just let our listeners know where they can find you on the interwebs and give us all your social media shout outs? Yes, uh, Simone Missick on Twitter and on Instagram. Uh, super simple, S-I-M-O-N-E-M-I-S-S-I-C-K. Um, 
Yeah, those are those are by you know my my things, Instagram and Twitter. It's all I got. So at Simone Missick on Instagram and Twitter. Awesome. Thank you so much again for coming on our show. Miss Thank Kelly. you, ladies. <laughs> Y'all just made me feel so good. Made me feel so comfortable and confident. Oh, I love it when our guests are brilliant. Just brilliant. I love it. Just everywhere. Just brilliant. Y'all got some great voices too. Like, thank you. Good job. Yeah. <laughs> you got it. You dropped it down to the deeper register. Thank you. <laughs> thank you, Jamie. Thank you, Karan. Thank you, Latanya. Thank you. Bye. All right. Have a good one, y'all. Actress and singer Alexandra Shipp will be seen in 20th Century Fox's new film, X-Men Apocalypse, directed by Brian Singer. She plays superheroine Storm. Shipp was recently seen in Universal Pictures' Straight Out of Compton, and she appeared in the Lifetime biopic Aaliyah, Princess of R&B, as well as VH1's sequel, Drumline 2, A New Beat. Shipp made her film debut on a Fox feature film called Alvin and the Chipmunks, the sequel, playing the role of Valentina. She's also done guest star appearances on Showtime's Ray Donovan, Switched at Birth, Victorious, and MTV's Awkward. Well, I am here with Alexandra Shipp. She plays Aurora Monroe. You know her best as Storm from the X-Men comics, and she is in the new film that is slated to be released on Friday, May 27th, X-Men Apocalypse. Alexandra, thank you so much for coming on the Black Girl Nerds podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much. You know, you are working with some of the most talented actors in the industry in this film. You've got Oscar Isaac, Sophie Turner, James McAvoy. I have to ask, what was it like working with these guys? And was there a particular actor that you were a little intimidated to work with when you got started? Honestly, I was intimidated to work with all of them. <laughs> they are all so fantastic and, and so incredibly and humble human beings and had the pleasure of meeting and working with and I was nervous about meeting every single one of them and they all welcomed me with open arms and, and I was really able to develop some really beautiful friendships out of it. That is awesome to hear that you got some good relationship, uh, working relationship yeah. with them. That's awesome. A, a lot of fans would love to have a Storm movie and it's long overdue. Do you think that moviegoers yeah. are ready to have a Storm film? I would love that. I think the fans are super ready. I think they're down, you know? I think we all have just kind of been waiting for it to, to go down, you know? We're like, all right, guys, who's doing it? Who's getting it together? Like, who's going to be in it? And, like, I'm such a huge fan. Like, I don't need to be in the Storm movie. They just need to make one. You know what I'm saying? Like, Hallie can do, like... I'm sure Hallie would love to be a part of that. Hallie got, she's got it, you know what I mean? But, like, it would just be so wonderful. I, I agree completely. Storm's been around for so long now, and I just feel like at this point, fans are hungry for yeah. it, so. I'm a, I'm a fan, and, like, I've wanted it. I've wanted it ever since they first started doing X-Men movies, you know? Did you ever watch the, because I grew up on X-Men myself, and it really facilitated through the X-Men animated series on Fox that came out in the 90s. Did you watch the animated yeah. series at all, or did you read any of the comic books? Yeah, I, I, I read the comic books, and I, I 
amazing and I really hope they bring it back on Netflix I know it's on Hulu now which I don't have but they had it on Netflix for a while so I hope they bring it back (laughs) yeah so I haven't seen the film myself yet but is there a scene from the movie of course without spoiling it that was very special to you Um, or a scene that you enjoyed doing most it was was the scene when uh, I'm first recruited by um by Apocalypse, and I love, I love that scene so much because for me it was it felt like that moment that a Storm fans have been waiting for for her to like appear, you know, and then become Storm. And I really just like after seeing it got all the feels, you know what I mean? Just like so happy that I got to have that like Storm moment, and for us to see how she becomes storm and steps out of that oral kind of mode, you know? She goes from this street rat to this, like, badass black mamba. (laughs) Wow, you got me excited for this. This is awesome. So I I have to be a superficial fangirl for a moment. You mentioned Apocalypse. And I have to ask, what was it like working with Oscar Isaac? Because I'm in love with him. (laughs) Oh, girl, he is the that he is so sweet. He is such an amazing actor as well. And you know, for me, it was it was awesome to be working opposite this guy who was acting through like two inches of rubber and silicone and plastic and you know, all and makeup. And he's got these crazy pipes coming out of his neck. And I met Oscar when he was in like full apocalypse mode. And so, and like I've seen his face before, but like seeing him as apocalypse. I kind of only knew him as Apocalypse for a minute there, which was kind of fun. Like, I, I hadn't seen him just completely stripped down out of it, but he's just such a wonderful actor, and he kills it every time, and and I'm so happy in watching the film to see that Brian was able to capture the, the moment and the goosebumps that I was feeling um, acting opposite him, standing on the other side of that camera, you know, and... And I think that the fans are really getting a little bit of it. That's amazing. Did you read any of the comics when you were um, when you got the role? Did you do it beforehand or after? Um, I I that was like my first order of business was I'd have the the cartoons on the TV. I'd have all the comics in front of me, and I would be going in between um, cartoons and. Um, the X-Men live-action movie. I was in it to win it, honey. I still am. I mean, honestly, no one can say I've read every Storm comic there ever has been. If you if you can, like, that's awesome and more power to you because that's so sick. But, like, I'm still reading more comics every day, you know? And 
know, I love going to comic book shops and like sneaking in and being like, hey guys, you get storm section? And they're like, yeah, we'll there. And then I'll just like buy up as many as I can afford. And then I'll just go home and read them. They're in a pile <laughs> by my bed. That is awesome. My favorite storm arc was when she fought Callisto, the leader of the Morlocks. Uh, so good. Yes, so amazing. So, so how excited that that's good to hear that you're reading the comics and um, another big black superhero has made waves on social media and getting a lot of buzz. Black Panther. So how excited are you for the Black Panther movie? And do you agree that this film will probably break box office records? Because I seem to think so. I think it will. I'm so excited for this. You know, a lot of people think that, like, I think that I love the the name of your podcast, by the way, because it's so real, because I am a black girl nerd. And, like, the fact that people haven't had a chance to, like, really recognize the power of the black nerds, you know, and I think it'll it'll really surprise a lot of people how amazing this uh, Black Panther movie does. I am so excited for it. I was so excited um, when I got the chance to get out of Compton because I was like, you guys, are, no one's ready for this. No one's ready for, like, real amazing, beautiful work, and Gary Gray is such a phenomenal director, and he painted the picture so beautifully and I'm like alright guys, next Black Panther you know, it's just the sky is the limit, I'm so excited for Black Panther, you have no idea that's awesome to hear, and, and it's really cool that you have declared yourself a black girl nerd that's awesome yes, always, <laughs> forever represent, yes so, I understand that you had to learn to speak Arabic for this role, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, it was really fun, actually. I was incredibly nervous. I thought it was going to be the um, the, the, the scariest thing on the planet. Um, but it, it turned out really well. In seeing the film, I am so happy with um, how everything turned out. And I worked really hard. A lot of sleepless nights, but all worth it. Was there any other African languages or dialects that you had to work with a dialect coach on? Yeah, for me, it was really important that my, um, that my, my Kenyan accent was, was on point. And it was really important for me for my, my, um, Arabic to be on point because I'm representing a group of people and I'm not about to do it incorrectly or in any sort of uneducated way. So I was very specific, you know, Storm is very specific. He's born in Cairo, raised in the States for a couple years, back in, and then she's back, and she's in Egypt, and she speaks Arabic, but, you know, in the comics, he had an English accent, in the, uh, in the, um, in the TV show, and so it's just like, uh, there were a lot of different ways to, to go about doing her accent, but I wanted to kind of stay true to that, I was like, I need, I need the Kenyan accent to be, I was like, I'm going to go super hard with it, Brian Singer, and you can just give me a pullback note. <laughs> there would be, like, moments where he would be like, um, let's do that again, and Alex is a little bit clearer on that. I was like, okay, okay, because, like, I'll go speak, and then you'll just have to pull me out of the thick of it, you know? <laughs> um, and I felt the same way about my Arabic. I wanted to, I wanted it to be perfect, and so I worked with my dialect coach over and over and over again, listening to the tape, 
playing while I was sleeping. I wanted to do it justice. I wanted to do it the right way. So I just want to take a moment and be candid about the fact that X-Men Apocalypse has gotten some mixed reviews from critics. For listeners of our show who have not yet seen the movie but heard about the criticism, what what would you say to them as far as why they should check out X-Men Apocalypse? I think that people should check out X-Men Apocalypse because for me, as a really big X-Men fan, it gave me all of the goosebumps that I was looking for. And then for me as an actor, the, the things that I imagined in my head, you know, about uh, about Storm and, and about her powers, and I'm surrounded by green screen, and it's, and it's kind of coming from me and our, VF, our amazing VFX people and Brian Singer, but it all came to fruition. The things I had in my mind that I was imagining were right there on the screen, and it's just so fulfilling to be able to see that and you really do get to see Storm, A, in her natural habitat, and B, speaking Arabic, and 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 really uh, representing for her African people, you know? I'm really excited for the fans to see it. Everyone's a critic these days, but I'm not worried about the critics. I'm worried about the fans. And as a fan, I love the movie. That is awesome to hear. Amazing. Alexandra, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to do this interview. And X-Men Apocalypse, again, guys, it comes out in theaters on Friday, May 27th. Check it out. She goes hard. She's a black girl nerd. (laughs) Representing. (laughs) Thank you, Alexandra. It was lovely talking to you. It was so great talking to you, too. All right. Take care. Thanks. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Valicia Butterfield-Jones is Google's head of Black community engagement, who served as an MC with a celebrity guest and actress Tatiana Ali at a recent event called Google's Made with Code. It awarded a young Black girls rock student with a coding scholarship for $10,000 at the event with a commitment of $20,000 or more in scholarship to follow in support of the continued computer science education. Welcome to this episode of the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. I am your host, KB, and I am joined today by a very special guest. She is co-founder and CEO of the Women in Entertainment Empowerment Network. She's worked under President Obama's administration. She's worked for Russell Simmons within Rush Communications, and she is now head of Black Community Engagement at Google. She is a wife, mom, and author, Please welcome to the podcast, Mrs. Valicia Butterfield-Jones. Hello. How are you? I'm well. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, thank you so much for joining our show. We really, really appreciate it. So I'm just going to go ahead and dive in. So I had the pleasure of meeting you and your incredible team last week at Google. So why don't you go ahead and tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself and how you ended up in your current role at Google. Yes, thank you so much for coming by uh, to see us and spending the time. Um, I started just five months ago as the head of black community engagement for Google, as you mentioned. And my career over the last 16 years after graduating from Clark Atlanta University in Atlanta has really been focused on social responsibility and racial justice whether that was for the Obama administration, as you mentioned, 
working in the entertainment industry, focused on youth engagement around voter education and financial literacy. All of those experiences really prepared me for this great opportunity and challenge to drive inclusion and diversity in the technology industry. And so my role as the head of black community engagement includes the internal and external engagement of black communities, ultimately to boost recruitment into the industry and to get young people interested in computer science as a potential career track. Awesome. So how do you guys plan to go about implementing such dynamic changes at Google through this partnership with the black community? You know, it's no secret that the tech industry lacks diversity, and it's something that we've been solving for for many years now. And, and Google took a big step in 2014 by being transparent in our data and sharing our workforce numbers and statistics. And so, you know, I think that was the first step. We really wanted to be honest with ourselves and with the community about the challenges we had uh, regarding diversity in tech. And so now it's time, you know, to create a plan of action, and that's what we've done. So really thinking through, you know, who are our strategic partners in this? Who can we work closely with this, whether it's through the media, whether it's through community influencers, academic institutions, and beyond to develop programs around ultimately recruitment into the industry, but also around education of the pipeline. And so we want to make sure that we're doing our part as a company to make sure that young African Americans are receiving the tools, the education, and more importantly, the access they need to tap into and break into the tech industry. I'd like to talk a little bit more about that because, you know, last week when we were having this discussion at Google, we definitely talked a lot about how this next generation is really will be key in changing the diversity landscape in major corporations like Google. So mm -hmm. I'd like to know, you know, I know that you're a mom. How has becoming a mom really changed your perspective and pushed you even further in this role to change that landscape for the generation to come? Oh, my goodness. I mean, if you just think about, you know, the role technology plays in our lives, it's really become deeply ingrained in everything that we do. You know, I call technology the new literacy. I think, you know, young people are already attached to their devices. My son, for example, is attached to the iPad and YouTube kids whenever I give him the opportunity. And so, you know, it's so important for us to leverage those platforms, but more importantly, transition young people from users into coders. And so because the appetite is already there, we're finding that young people obviously are using the platforms and with minorities especially over-indexing on, you know, all of these social media platforms. It's important for us to show them the other side of this, that you can be a coder. Computer science can be something that you're interested in, even if you're not a master of science. You know, I think that so often young people think that maybe if they're not excelling greatly in math or science, that technology is not for them, and that's not the case. There's so many different forms and, and, and ways to enter the field. And so, you know, I really think that it's important that we kind of, you know, not only break through some of those perception barriers, but more importantly, become more accessible as an industry to let young people know that there is a place for them here, you know, should they decide to go that route. Do you think that, you know, what you just mentioned in terms of having the younger generation really start viewing themselves as coders, mm -hmm. um, do you think that one of the biggest misconceptions about Google is that they'll never be able to work there? Do you think that that's something that's, that we're struggling with within the black community currently? I would say it's more of the industry. I think that we're finding that young people don't always aspire to work in the tech industry probably because they don't see themselves here in great numbers. And so, you know, again, it goes back to the perception challenges and doing our part to show the faces of people 
like mine and so many others who are behind the scenes doing the work and taking on leadership positions so they can know that there are examples of people who look like them in positions like this. And so, you know, I think that's a part of it, you know, really leading with the people behind the work and the organizations who look like the communities that we serve. But then also we must take a step further around the academic piece too. So making sure that computer science is accessible to young people in academic campuses and institutions, but also giving them the education, the curriculum, the tools that they need to thrive in those settings is, is, is critical as well. So an example would be our Google in Residence program here where uh, we at Google send out and deploy black engineers on two HBCU campuses, for example, to teach programs, curriculum, and classes around a computer science education to make sure that they're ready for the interview process with a company like Google and can ultimately land the position. Yeah, I was actually just about to commend you guys for that because we did talk a little bit about that initiative and the Black Googler Network, which I think mm -hmm. would do you know, huge things for um, the black community and the youth coming through who really are interested in STEM. I have another question. So you know, during the roundtable, we also talked about various initiatives such as Google Fiber. We talked about the love letters from kids as imprisoned parents. And we also talked about various you know, missions against social injustice. So you mentioned a little bit earlier that there are it's going to take some strategic partnerships in order to make these things happen. What types of partnerships do you feel like would be the most successful in achieving the goals of these community engagement initiatives? Well, I think the first step is something that I'm very proud of, um, to work for a company that's taken truly a holistic approach to diversity and especially the engagement of black communities. And so you mentioned it just now, the big step and stand that we've taken on the racial justice front. Uh, we wanted to make sure that not only were we investing in the community where we could potentially gain employees, but also that we were making sizable and needed investments in other areas of the community that may not yield a, a direct return as far as employment, but it's the right thing to do. So for example, the racial justice grants that our Google.org team recently announced back in February of $5 million to directly address racism and systemic racism in our society and ultimately uh, solving for some of those challenges through partnerships with community organizations throughout the country was a big step and something I'm so proud of. Another example would be the Flint water crisis we gave uh, or made an announcement recently of another grant of $250,000 in partnership with the University of Michigan, do our part to solve for uh, the challenges there and the clear disparities that are going on on the ground. And so it, it really feels good to be a part of a company that not only talks the talk but walks the walk. And so I think through you know continued partnerships like that, as well as with community organizations that are doing their part on the com computer science front uh, in the educational sector are critically important and mission critical to our success to make sure that we are not only driving education in the pipeline, but recruiting the top talent within the pipeline into our company. I have to, again, commend you and your team at Google because, you know, I've never been a, a part of that type of conversation. I've never, not even in my, in my workplace do we have those types of conversations about diversity and how we can improve, and also just thinking long term, you know, for two to three generations to come, how can we make this facility um, mm -hmm. look more like the world actually does? My question for you is, what's the most dynamic thing that you have learned so far in your five months at Google? Well, I think that it's important 
to remind ourselves that we can't operate in a vacuum. And so it's so important that we, you know, look to the leaders in the community and those who have been doing the work for many years to make sure that we are introducing and applying the best possible strategies and tactics to make sure that the work we're doing to engage the community is authentic and that it really is meaningful and, and driving change. And so that's one, operating outside of, you know, Silicon Valley and, and really meeting the community where they are, and in most cases that's through community organizations, through community leaders, and with young people. And so that's very important for us. And then also I'll say in the five months I've been here, while we have a lot of work to do, I was so inspired by the work that has already been done. The racial justice piece is just one part of the tremendous work that Google's done to engage the community. Also, our supplier diversity team has an Accelerate for Google program, by example, focusing on black-owned and small businesses. We have other areas of the business like our Google Fiber program, focusing on connectivity within uh, communities with high black populations, and the list goes on. And you know, it, it just is a reminder of the fact that Google is a company that really is invested in making the world a better place and more reflective of the, the communities that we serve and, and represent. And so, you know, with all of that said, I'm just so thrilled to be on this journey and continue to look to partners and strong platforms like yours to make sure that we're doing our part to engage the community in a way that is authentic and, and can drive change. You mentioned this a little bit earlier about transparency and how Google was very transparent with releasing their uh, figures on diversity. I think in order to push change, we not only have to work together, but we must be vulnerable and transparent mm -hmm. in our efforts. Tell us a little bit more about future projects or, or current projects you know, for entrepreneurs and especially women of color, such as the Accelerate with the Google Academy program. When we released the numbers, the workforce numbers, two years ago, it really set the tone, I believe, for the industry to you know, be vulnerable, as you said, be transparent, and really take a closer look at you know, who we were, how we were made up, and what we can do ultimately to not only advance our inclusion goals, but to drive business and innovation. And so we found that the more inclusive a company is, uh, obviously the more innovative they can be and the more revenue they can drive. So not only is diversity the right thing to do, it's proven to be good for business. And so I think that you know, as we think through those strategies, together, we really have to be forward-thinking and not just thinking of now. We recognize that meaningful change takes time, and we're going to continue to chip off at this challenge day by day, brick by brick. But we also have to be willing to take you know, important and needed risks. And when I say risks, that means you know, not everything that we do has to always be rooted in you know, proven data and proven facts while it is important you know, in this industry to do that. But we also want to make sure that you know, we're doing things differently and trying new things to, to break through some of these challenges as a company and as an industry. So again, it goes back to the strategic partnerships. It goes back to having thoughtful conversations about strategy with key community leaders and ultimately being willing to invest in those areas for the change that we'd like to see and the return that we hope to have. So if someone wants to get involved or you know, have a discussion about maybe creating a strategic partnership, if we just have a listener who really feels like they could be of assistance to help, assistance to help push your initiative, how can they get involved? 
Well, I think a couple of ways. One is, you know, obviously take advantage of the products. And you just mentioned this too. But if you are a small business, a minority-owned business, you know, there are resources and tools available to you through Google. And all of that information is accessible on the website, back to the Accelerate for Google Academy program. But then also if you're an organization interested in partnership, interested in even um, collaboration, if you will, uh, with our group, Google.org is another great resource. Again, that's where the racial justice partnerships were created and also our work on the Flint water crisis. That all came through Google.org. So that's another great opportunity to seek out partnership in, in areas of collaboration. And then finally, you can always reach out to me on LinkedIn, on social media. I live there <laughs> all day, every day. And, and reach out you know, if you're a like-minded partner of interest in the work that we do. I would love to um, have that type of dialogue and conversation to figure out ways to support each other. Because we know that we can't do it alone. I know that I can't do it alone. And so, you know, for many years, I've really focused on, you know, creating strong relationships in the community to ultimately make sure that, you know, we're driving change for our community. And so that's what this is about. And I want to make sure that I'm going to continue to do my part in this role as well. Wonderful. Okay, so just one last question. So you have about seven months or so until your one-year anniversary. <laughs> yes. When it becomes your one-year Google anniversary, what's the number one goal that you will have hoped to achieve? My number one goal is to shift the narrative and the way we as a community see the tech industry as a place of potential employment and a place where we belong. And so whether that's young people thinking about and majoring in computer science as a result of that narrative shift, whether it's more individuals and black engineers applying for positions at Google and other companies in the industry that would look like success by shifting the narrative, and ultimately opening our doors widely to communities of color as a part of this community in tech would be the goal. I continue to create partnerships and have conversations like this as we shift the narrative together, I think that we're going to see the face of technology change. And so for me, that would be the goal. Wonderful. And so we, we just as a community, how can we help Google maximize the benefits of, of y'all's initiative? Besides you know, reaching out on LinkedIn, what else can we do other than buying the product in, in real time? Anything else? Write great reviews? You know, <laughs> do, uh, what can we do? <laughs> Absolutely. We're going to be pushing out more communications, but we just would love for individuals to just spread the word and the message of computer science to young minorities and to young black and brown girls and boys. And, and that would be it, to be a champion of change, to be a messenger of STEM and STEAM for uh, young minorities would be key. I think that the more uh, young people see and hear from voices and platforms like yours that computer science is cool, you know, STEM could be something that can be fun and creative, and a potential career path for you would be key. So just continue to drive the message to young people that this is a place for them where they can belong and also thrive professionally as young adults. Well, you know we at Black Girl Nerds have pretty much built a platform around changing the stigma around the word nerd. And uh, yes. me personally, I, I do have a STEM background, so I am always voting for people to get involved in science and technology, what I majored in in college, it's the industry that I work in for my 9 to 5. So 
you have my vote for sure. <laughs> and anything that we could do at Black Girl Nerds, obviously we would love to be a, a part of it and help you guys partner because this is such an important dialogue, such an important conversation. And we really do need to change the culture and, and the way we do business. So thank, thank you. So yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time out to speak with us. Just one more thing. Please let everyone know where we can find you on the Internet. So give your social media handle, maybe spell it out for our listeners so that they can follow you. And we yes. can this conversation. <laughs> you can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. Even my website is all my first name. And that's C-A-L-E-I-S-H-A. And if it's the website, it's Belisha.org. But all of my social handles are Belisha. Wonderful. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this interview. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. With more than 15 years of experience in investing in today's youth, Sean Blanchard has gained the incredible ability to speak to the hearts and minds of our youth while providing them with necessary tools needed to leverage obstacles in order to reach success. After serving as the Director of Youth Services for the City of Detroit's Mayoral Cabinet, Blanchard has stepped down in pursuit of serving youth throughout the nation. Hey everybody, it's your girl Karan for Black Girl Nurse Podcast. And today we have community leader and entrepreneur Sean Blanchard. Sean has served as Director of Youth Services for the City of Detroit and as a New York City Teaching Fellow for five years. A former adjunct professor at University of Michigan, he speaks across the country on mentorship, success, and overcoming adversity. We're here today to discuss his new book, How About That for a Crack Baby? Keys to Mentorship and Success. Welcome, Sean. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much. Tell us a little bit about your background. How did you get into mentorship and why is it so important to you? Yes, the premise of the book and the premise of my life, they all merge. So Basically, mentorship is rooted in my why. When I was born, I was born with drugs in my system. And although my parents were both able, they gave me to my grandparents. And I was raised around family, but I was always a kid that was pretty much alone. that didn't have parents around. My grandmother, she loved me so much, despite me having bladder issues as a little kid and just being pretty much the outcast, the darkest of all the cousins. It was her words of, of wisdom and love to me when she told me I was smart and handsome that I began to just hone those words and I would say she was my first mentor. When she passed away when I was 12 years old, I really didn't have any rules anymore and I have seven brothers. Three of them are now deceased and three of them have been incarcerated and one actually has life in prison with 11 children and the thing is he was also another one of my mentors and at that point When I had brothers that died and brothers that were in prison, I had to become a mentor myself at the age of 14, being a father to my own younger brother. So I've been doing this mentor life since I entered high school in the ninth grade full time as a father to my younger brother, who unfortunately now has 12 to 20 years in prison. And he just did 10 of them. But nevertheless, I set out on a journey to make sure that I could give what I didn't receive as a young person to many. And what other mentors have you had in your life? You have quite a stellar resume reading your bio. It is quite impressive. How did you garner you. the strength to to keep pushing forward in the face of such adversity? You know what? God winks. God is a he's a <laughs> he's an interesting character. 
And so just when I was about to fall off the face of the earth with making a number of bad decisions, God will always send me someone who was just perfect for me, such as a, a high school counselor or who didn't give me too much attention, but just the right amount of attention. Or God would send me a college professor who would just steer me in the right direction. And all in all, it was just those situations in life where God just brought somebody in that really steered me. And I just received it whenever they would come. Did you know what you wanted to do as a child? That's a good question. Absolutely. When I was a child, I wanted to rap and sell drugs. (laughs) And was it that mentorship and that leadership in your life that helped turn that around for you? You ended up as a professor at one of the leading universities in the country and a teaching fellow. How did that come about? You know, it's, it's interesting. I always, I had a dual life. So I was always a smart kid but I always was a a bad kid Mm -hmm. and and let me not say bad. I guess I was always had an entrepreneur spirit. So while I was out there scoring in the 99th percentile in state exams in elementary school growing up, I just understood getting money from people that worked in a plant or people that were in a black market. And I just Mm -hmm. really wanted to go that way. So just a way to make money. And so math was just something that I always knew. But I had this double life going on. And when I cut the double life off, I mean, mathematics is what I just tapped into. I was already in college by the time I went to jail. So I was just like, you know what? As soon as I got out of there and I gave my life over to Christ, I was like, you know what? I'm going to go ahead, steadfast on this mathematical track. And hopefully something good will happen because I didn't know what was going to happen. But I took my mathematician mentor, Denise Lee. I took her good words and I just kept moving forward. So why now for the book? You know what? The book is... It's, it's been a long time coming. Right now, it's good because I'm 33. I'm in my Jesus year right now. And so I've had a, <laughs> a nice lifetime of doing a whole bunch of things that I should have did, shouldn't have did. But it's all it's been all meant to be so I can make sure that I can, one, tell this story so other people can tell their stories and be released from whatever bondage they have because we all have a story. And second, I got to tell people about these breadcrumbs. I'm at a point where I've been recognized locally doing things with individuals, groups, schools, cities, and I need to take it to a national level. So this is me pulling out the bullhorn and letting people know about these keys to mentorship and success. And is there a plan? Is there a target demographic? What kind of kids do you want to reach? And see, I love that. Great question. So the book has three phases. It's me when I was that kid that needed the mentorship. It's me when I leveraged mentorship more in the college age. Then it's me when I'm an adult creating that same consciousness of mentorship and other people. So basically, the target audience is the young person that needs it, the person that's actually understanding themselves and utilizing it, and the person who's actually doing it for others. So the spectrum is wide because mentorship is wide. It's something that we do. It's a state of influence that we that comes into our life from the moment that we step into this world until the time that we leave it. Now, mentorship is something that we hear a lot about, and we mostly hear mentorship in the context of young men. But what do Mm -hmm. you have to offer for young women, especially for young black girl nerds? And see, that's what I, that's what I, and see, now you're hitting it. Now you're getting there because mentorship, we can say young man and put it in a silo, but quite honestly, mentorship is not just for young people. Mentorship is being an apprentice. Mentorship is what kings did to princes and what queens did to princesses. So it's something that people have been doing since the olden days to push themselves forward 
And every great person in this world, every guru in this world, everybody leverages mentorship. So when we talk about how can young ladies leverage it the same way young men leverage it, we need to reach out to mentors, whether they're an example, a director or a sponsor in our life. And we need to make sure we create a healthy universe, which are all things that are spoken about in a book to drive our life towards success. So it's not just the male species, it's the female species, too. Why should anybody care? We could say that you are you are handsome, you are successful in your own right. Why should you care what happens to the generation that follows without giving the blanket typical statement? Well, I would say, why should we care to care is the fact that this is my why. Man, I have approximately 50 nieces and nephews. I had a just a very Did fine Did you say 50? That's right. I have approximately 50 nieces and nephews. I have one brother with wow. 11 kids and another sister with eight. And I have seven brothers and five sisters. So mentorship is not just something that I'm just doing for random people I don't know. I'm doing this for my family. <laughs> I'm leaving breadcrumbs for everybody because I got so many I have to leave it for already, but we might as well spread the love. And I'm a Christian man. So at the end of the day, Luke 6 and 38, gave it shall be given unto you, pressed down, shaken together, running over until the love running overflows, men shall give into your bosom with what measure you meet. So I know that the most vital thing that we can do in this world is leave the breadcrumbs. Any leader, the only reason they're a great leader is because of following that they have, even when they close their eyes to this world. And it lives on. The word also says to whom much is given, much is required. So what has been the most challenging thing for you on this journey to lead this this new path to mentorship? Great question. Great question. Well, you know what? It's the truth of knowing that you can't save them all and you're not the one to save each individual. But that doesn't mean you don't try the whole concept of, well, it's not that we're going to set out as mentors to create rock stars, but we're simply going to make them better than what they would have been without us. So I've had some mentees that didn't quite hit the mark of where I wanted them to reach. And so that hurts because it's like, man, I put so much time in, I put so much sweat equity in and I didn't get, get out of it what I wanted, but God got out of it what he wanted. And the individual has been equipped what he needs to push forward. Sometimes we're just dropping seeds and, and those things can be hard, likely so. My, my first mentee, my younger brother, uh, he's five years younger than me, and he has 12 to 20 years to just finish 10 right now. Man. So I look at that, and I, I said, man, I, I failed. And I said, no, I won. He's inside behind the wall mentoring right now. And when he come home, we're going to tear something up. So on the flip side of that question, we've talked about what mentorship can do for a young person. But for a young person who has had experiences similar to yours or someone who has come through extreme trauma as a child or an adolescence may have significant trust issues. Mm -hmm. How do you break through those barriers and give them the room to open up to accept a mentor? That's awesome. And, and I think that's a part of that's not on that's not the onus of the young person because they're in an unconscious state in which they don't understand sometimes that they need it. So that's something that the mentor would need to know. And a lot of times people are trying to teach and mold, but we, we have to take a step back before we can teach them. We have to reach them. Before we reach them, we must understand their significant emotional events in their lives that have actually bottled up this person to be such a closed off individual. And we do that by being very vulnerable. Vulnerable meaning that, you know what? I'm going to tell you my experiences. That's one. Wrap that up with care. Wrap that around with care and just making sure they get paid the proper attention and homage. And you will see that the young person will open up when they understand that they're not suffering from an experience of isolation in which a lot of young people think that they are. 
And what has mentorship done for you as the mentor? Oh, man. Sometimes we look at life and we think that, man, you know, money is is what success is. And don't get me wrong. It's a part of it. I mean, I like finances like the next person. But you know what? I find that the greatest rewards that come in life, they absolutely come from what we get from putting goodness into the world. So Mm -hmm. I get the honor of knowing that it's like, man, I just put something into somebody else's life. That's bigger than any type of money that you can get from doing anything. And then again, like, you know, I do want to, my finances are very important to me. But but Mm -hmm. beyond that, man, when you do that right there, you're making God smile. You can buy a possession or get something in this world. You're making yourself smile. So making God smile is something that I love to do. So tell us how you're going to move forward with your mentorship. You have the book. You have Mm -hmm. your relationships that are established. I assume that they're regional since you did say that you want to go national. How will you move this forward? I'm so glad you said that. So the beautiful thing is what I like to do is, you know, I do work with my brother's keeper initiative here in Detroit. And Mm -hmm. one of the concepts that the president is uh, really big on is mentorship as well. And I know that there's organizations such as Big Brothers, Big Sisters, Boys and Girls Club. There's lots of organizations that are really big on mentorship and the need for mentors is ever present. So what I want to do as I go out and I'm going on my tour, I want to make sure that I can sign up people to be those mentors, enable them to understand what mentorship is, to define that for them. Let's get these numbers up, man. People are gurus in their own right. And they need to make sure that they're giving their greatness to other people so that we can have a society of greatness. So, Sean, with a W, tell us where we can find you online and where we can find you on social media. Awesome. Well, online, you can find me at I am Sean Blanchard with a W dot com. And you can also find me on social media at at Sean TB. Sean uh, with a W. T is in total. B is in big. And you can also find me on Facebook at uh, Sean Blanchard. Any final thoughts for our Black Girl Nerds community? I'll say this. The biggest thing that we can do in this world is give from the greatness that we've been able to establish within ourselves. Know yourself, know yourself, know yourself, and give from yourself. There you have it, ladies and gents. Sean T. Blanchard, thank you so much for joining us on the Black Girl Nerds podcast. It's a pleasure.